If you've got your copy of God's Word, uh, let's open up to the book of 1 John, where we're going to continue right along. We're done talking about Antichrist, and uh, maybe to the relief of of some of you guys that are here, we've been wrestling with some of that. Uh, I do uh, just sort of a shameless plug. This Wednesday, uh, I'll start at 6.15 promptly, uh, where uh, we'll be walking through for the semester just studying eschatology. Uh, what that is. If you don't know what that word is, like, come on and learn about it. And uh, we're going to talk about a lot of different things uh, as far as uh, views and beliefs that sort of tie into our culture and where we're at. Um, Just by show of hands, how many of you guys made a New Year's resolution this year? It's okay to admit it. All right, raise your hand. Be proud. You owned it. How many of you like, nope, don't do that. Learn a long time ago not to do that. All right. All right. Fair enough. Right. Um, At some point, some of you have made a resolution if you didn't this year. Uh, and, and so you understand sort of, uh, sort of the, 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 the gist of this. Um, I want to ask, why is, it, why is it we make resolutions? Sometimes they're motivated by, by good things, sometimes bad things. But, but anytime a new year begins, typically people will make resolutions. And the most common resolution that most individuals make is a resolution to get healthy and to get fit more often than not. Sometimes it's to work on your inner sense of self and, and whatever that may be. And uh, you may want to lose weight. You may want to grow your muscle. You want to lose some fat or, or whatever it is and wherever you are on that spectrum. And, and what, what is the primary motivator in, in doing something like that? Oftentimes we're motivated by what we see we could be. And so what we see we could be, could eventually happen, becomes a primary motivator into how we act in the present day. So one of my best friends in college, he was just a year older than me, about a year and a half ago, he was having some health issues and so he went to the doctor and he was talking about trouble sleeping, uh, just general uncomfortability. And and his doctor looked at him very pastorally, very wisely and he, he told my buddy, he said, listen, if you don't change your habits, your eating habits in particular, you were on the road to having a heart attack at 40 years old and you're not gonna live long enough to see your kids graduate from high school. It's pretty harsh. And so he began this process of changing and modifying his behavior. And so for about a year, he's been engaged in this and he's lost somewhere upwards of, of 40 pounds. He looks great and he's motivated, but his motivation was he wanted to be able to enjoy his kids long-term, but he also wanted to enjoy his life and, and where he was. And so his health, it affected how he would go about doing his job. And, and so it became a motivator that he wanted to live long and he wanted to see his kids grow up and to be old. And so he began to make some changes in his life. Well, you know, spiritually speaking, there are times in which we need some motivation of what it's supposed to look like in the future and and to be reminded of some things that have yet to happen and that are yet to come to motivate us as a people of God to be obedient and to do the things that God has called us to do. It's a formation issue within his people. And so in the text this morning, in verse 28 through about verse three of of chapter three, In 1 John, we're going to see this one simple idea sort of pervades the the whole entirety of the text. And the idea, just as clear as I could put it, is essentially this. When you see what you will become tomorrow, it will change how you live today. 
And so if you can capture an idea of what it is God is doing for you and what it is he wants you to become, it's going to impact how you live your life today in this very moment that we're in. And what John does in the text is he gives us these reminders of identity and who we are, of some future things that are going to come about and how our view of the Lord in particular is going to change. And so what I want you to notice beginning in verse 28, I want you to notice how John reminds the people of God and he, he reminds them of the confidence they should have in Christ's return. Look in verse 28 where he says this, and now little children... Abide in him. Now my children abide in him. We've seen this phrase children over and over and over throughout the book. And I want to remind us because I think that there's some intention in this behind John's words and why he uses the words that he does. He uses the term children not to be condescending towards the people, not to talk down to them spiritually, not to be above them in any such way, even though technically he would be. But it's a term used for endearment. And it's a reminder to us of, of as he endears them and he loves them and he shows affection to them, he's reminding them of their standing before God. But I want you to notice and not miss this. I've said this over and over every time we've seen this word used. I want you to notice how he speaks as a reminder to us about his affections for the church. Now, he's willing to address some things that are going on in the life of the church and to have some honest and some real conversations. But in no way, as he addresses the life of the church, does he speak about the body in, in condescending posture or a condescending behavior. But it is one of affection and love. Like he, frankly, he loves the church deeply. And just by using this little title that, that almost seems seemingly insignificant, we are reminded of a people, as a people, that we ought to mirror the posture and the behavior of how we display our affections for the church, which also happens to be the bride of Christ, and how we address it and how we go about talking about it. But notice what word he uses after he uses the word children. He reminds them to abide in him. I believe this word abide is probably one of the, if you had to have a list of the top 10 theological words in the New Testament that you should pay attention to that has great implications for our life, this is one of those words. And the question is, again, what does he mean by the word abide? And in a most literal sense, it means to just stay or remain next to. My children, let me remind you to abide in him being Christ. And what he's referring to by using this word is he is implicitly stating this observation that our personal relationship with Christ is of, of utmost importance. And then how we minister, how we serve, how we give, how we use our resources, all of those things are meant to be done out of the overflow of our walk with Christ. And so this past week, I read this uh, sort of hypercritical blog post by, by an individual who was sort of using it to sort of lambast the church in general and sort of accusing the church of using uh, non-scriptural words to talk about uh, scriptural and spiritual states. And so he was sort of let in and, and was letting the church 
have it that we use the word like Trinity that doesn't exist in the Bible. So if it's not biblical, we shouldn't use it, which is utter nonsense. And I have a response to that later. But the very next phrase that he sort of laid into was this idea that nowhere in the Bible do you see the phrase used personal relationship with Jesus. And truth be told, we have to go, yeah, it's, it's not used in, in, in that way. But it's a phrase in which we use to describe intimacy with Christ. And my response to him, though I didn't engage in the blog, but my response to you as you hear people talk about those things, that one of the ideas that we get from the, from the notion of abiding and staying closely to Christ, specifically even in this text this morning, my little children abide in him. What he is talking about is he is talking about intimacy and fellowship and union with Jesus. In other words, what he's saying, just put in the modern vernacular, he's talking about a personal relationship with Jesus. He's talking about walking closely with Christ at our jobs and in our homes. And, and as we serve in our communities, my children, abide in him, stay close to him, be near to him. So that what? So that when he appears, we may have what? What does the text say? We may have confidence. Now, oftentimes when we parse the word confidence, we think of this quiet inner like stillness that exists within our hearts. I'll confidently go up in any situation or, or manage whatever the issue is. But in this moment, he's using a specific phrase or, or a specific rendering of confidence that, that means to be outspoken. So that when Jesus appears, you will have confidence before him. You will have a verbal articulation. You will be outspoken in your praise and in your adoration to Christ when he returns because you've been abiding in him and walking with him and you know him and you understand him and you fellowship with him and you've longed for the day where your eyes get to see him as he fully is, that it is this outspokenness and this freedom of speech that you say it verbally to manifest what it is you feel inside your heart. It's words. Not just feelings, not just an inner quiet, a calmness, a steadiness, but no, an outspokenness so that when we see him, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame. I started thinking about how this idea of our understanding of, of what it will be like when we see Jesus. And by way of application, I, I began to wonder, the day that I really appreciate and see Jesus for who he is, I will have this outspoken praise before him. And, and I can't imagine, uh, or I can't imagine to a degree um, that, that we should, if not as believers in Christ, we long for that day where we can express that and to see that to be outspoken in our praise. But I wonder if in the context of the church, by way of application, I wonder when it comes to our gift of hospitality and our posture of service that God calls us to, to be the hands and the feet of Jesus, to embody his message, to live his message. I wondered this question this week, and it's a question only you can answer individually. When you see people in this church body, particularly on a, on a Sunday morning or in your small group, 
And the way in which we're going to see Jesus and be outspoken with our praise, that he's going to know how we feel about them. I think a really pointed application for our church this morning, or at least for me, is to be cognizant of when I see friends that I haven't seen in a long time or strangers that I've never met. Do I articulate with my mouth in an outspoken way a confidence that, that, hey, my friend, I'm really glad that you came this morning. I'm really glad that you're present here this morning to have confidence, not a sense of, of shame, You know, a form of shame is actually shyness. So anthropologists and psychologists that that study shame in depth, they'll say that a form of shame is in essence shyness when you're near a stranger or someone you don't know. And so it's not a a feeling of regret or remorse or, or this high level of empathy, but a version of shame can often be shyness in the context of strangers. But what if our church on on a Sunday morning or even on a Wednesday night, what if we postured our behavior in the same way that we're going to see Christ and we're going to have this confidence and we're not going to shrink from him in a sense of shyness, in a sense of fear? What if our posture to every single person who came into this room was one of confidence and seeking out and pursuit? So here's the most practical way that I can, I can illustrate this. So when you come up here on a Sunday morning, some of you guys, I know the tendency is this. The first thing we do when we come in this room is we're looking for where we're going to sit, right? Oftentimes we, we're, we're creatures of habit and it's not wrong to want to sit in the same place. But what if our posture rather was, let me go find where I can put my Bible What if my posture, when I walk into this this very room, when I walk into this campus and and on this building, what if my posture was one of, I'm not gonna sit down until the order of service goes and I'm just gonna start making laps around this room over and over and over again. And I'm gonna shake as many hands. I'm gonna get reacquainted with people that I haven't seen in a long time. I'm gonna introduce myself to people that I don't know. I'm gonna ask them really common questions. Where are you from? What brought you here? Oh, by the way, what small group are you in? You wanna come be a part of my class next week? Let me take you out to lunch. Let me invite you into my home. Let's go grab some coffee, not Starbucks, but other coffee. Let's go engage, okay? And what if the idea was that you're going to try to get all 10,000 of your Fitbit steps right before the service because, man, you're just working the room. Whether you're introverted, extroverted, whether you're male or female, old or young, what if just the posture was, I want to make sure that everyone sees my confidence and they're welcome. And so one of the things that I've learned from my, my sweet, precious wife over the years As we've ministered together, uh, she said this several years ago and it stuck with me. And and it has to do with people that you don't see for a long time that maybe come back. And one of the things I've just learned to say naturally because of of the way that she's talked about this that has informed me is that when I see people and I'm asking, hey, where you been? How come you haven't been in church in a while? What's going on? How can I help you? Is there something that you need in your life? And they'll, they'll give off their list and their excuses. And then, and then here's, here's my response. Nine times out of 10, I'll simply just look them in the eye and say, listen, you, you are robbing people of the blessing of yourself by you not being there. That I want you to know how important and how valuable you are to our church. And then when you're not here, that we may not notice it the first Sunday because there's a lot of people here, but I want you to notice that if everybody plays a role in the body, then anytime we miss, then we are robbing people of, of the blessing that God can give in the way that we get to serve the church and to take care of the church and to provide for the church. And even the way, yes, that we sing in a worship service, that it builds the body of Christ up, it edifies it, it strengthens it. 
And so this same confidence, this outspokenness that we will display when we behold Christ for the first time and not shrink back from him in this way. We see this demonstrated at his coming, but I want you to also see the certainty of the relationship that exists. Look in verse 29, and he says this. If you know that he is righteous, he being Christ, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Just very quickly, I want you to know that he uses a specific word for know here. There's two words in the Greek for know. And they have very different meanings, although there is some overlap into our understanding. And the two words are oida and gnosko in the Greek. Oida just simply means that when this version is used, it means that you perceive a truth. So you have this this doctrinal truth, this this supposition that's given, and then you understand it and then you perceive it. But if you gnosko something, it means that you've experienced it. And your experience has led you to sort of validate the truth that you see. And there's a role for both, especially in the New Testament. But what John is doing in this instance is he uses the, the Greek word for no oida. And this tells us something really profound about how God wants us to learn and how he wants us to grow. Because the prevalent view in culture is this, is that we know things based on our experience of things. And this is where it becomes awry a little bit of how the New Testament tends to teach. It doesn't invalidate experience. It just tends to argue over and over and over again that it is truth what is what makes things true. Not whether or not we experienced it on whether or not it was true. And so when he says, if you know that he is righteous, you understand that theological reality You perceive that truth. In other words, what he's saying to us today, just very simply put, is that right understanding informs right practice. That's what that means. That if you want to live a certain way and live in the right way, you have to understand what the right way actually is. Scholars and and theologians, they put it this way. They'll just simply say, this makes you sound really smart if you say it like this. Orthodoxy informs orthopraxy. The right understanding historically of truth It is what informs our practice of those values and those truths, our virtues, our ethics, our morals. This is where those things come from. Right understanding informs right practice. But he goes on in this idea of relationship and and he says in verse one, and, and, and this is just sort of an aside thing, it's where we can find in the text that chapter breakdowns are not necessarily representative of the unit of thought that exists there. And they're misleading. And, and listen, when these, when these dudes in like the fourth century were transcribing the New Testament, they put those numbers in there just so when they'd fall asleep late at night by candlelight, like writing it down, so they knew where they left off and so they would pick back up. They don't always indicate the unit of thought. But here we have this continuation of unit of thought in verse one. And he says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. And what he does there in the very beginning is is he puts this word see, he makes it a command and at the same time this exclamation, like this this sense of excited uh, spirit that he has. And so if it would have been read to the church at large, uh, the one who was reading from the Greek would understand to say, he would have read it something like this, see, like behold, look at this. Pay close attention to what? And and listen, what he's talking about, there's no rebuke here. There's no real admonition. It's just simply see what? See what kind of love the Father has given us. And this 
sort of two-phrase rendering of what kind. It's, it's not a word that is seldom used in the New Testament. In fact, it's extremely rare. You can't find it if you do a, a search in the Greek for this. And the reason why it's put this way and it's so rare is because I think that the best translation that renders it this way, you say it something like this. See what kind, talking about love, see what glorious, what unfathomable, what measureless, what divine love and the way in which God loves us. There is nothing to compare to his desire for you and for me and his care for you and me and his concern for you and me. See what kind of love, because there is no other kind of love that the Father has given to us. There is nothing to compare it to. John 15, 13 illustrates this, and it's a verse that we know. Greater love is no one than this, that one laid down his life for his friends. He goes on, and he talking about this idea of the kind of love the Father has given to us. It's, it's a forever love. It's something that it, it, it's unending. Of his own free will, of his own influence choice, it is grace and grace alone that we have been saved, and it never changes. The relationship status might change from, from being someone who was in sin to all of a sudden someone who has been reborn out of that. But God cares and he loves for us. And the way that I know how to illustrate this is Haley and I, uh, we've been married for over 15 years. Uh, we started dating, um, when did we start dating? My sophomore year in college. Uh, I had to think about that for a second. Um, we started dating and um, I knew pretty quickly, we knew pretty quickly that, that we loved each other. I think it took me about four months to tell her I loved her. It took me about six months for I planted a big one on her cheeks, on her, on her lips and kissed her, right? And then like pursued this with like a fierceness. And one of the concerns I had with dating Haley as I got to know her parents is that I cared deeply as I dated her, not just, I knew that, that I needed to honor her in the way that God would have me honor her, but I, I knew about her dad and her, and her dad's a godly man who I deeply respect. And it was important to me that how I treated Haley was a reflection in some way of how Fred had honored her all the days of her life, but I wanted to make sure that when I, I courted her and dated her and, and pursued her, that I did it with, with Fred and, and Nancy, her mom and dad and mine, because they're godly people. And so I was considerate of that. But at the time, I was just the boyfriend. But, but the whole while, Fred deeply loved Haley. He was still, she was still his daughter, and he was called to provide for her and protect her. And so who is this young punk trying to court my daughter, right? There were all those questions that sort of came along. Well, eventually we got engaged, and eventually we got married. And though her status changed as far as single or married, like, like we had the DTR on Facebook, defined it publicly, got married, right? Like I'm in, like I've sealed the deal. This thing's over. But even as I've been married to her for 15 years, I, we, we try to, to court and to serve and to honor each other. I still think about Fred. And that the way that I'm, I'm treating her as a wife, does it, does it honor him and, and what he does? Because here's the deal, Fred, he still loves Haley. And I'm not there yet. And, and some of you are old enough, I know this, to, to be my mom and dad. Some of you are old enough to be my grandparents times two. And I know it's weird to have a pastor that could be your son age-wise. I get that. But as I've gotten older and listened to, to some of you that, that are older and have kids that are my age, one of the things I hear all the time is like, listen, you never really stop worrying about your kids, do you? 
Even as they're 30 and 40 and 50 years old, like you still like, man, I hope things are okay. I hope I can do something for them. It doesn't change just because they're married or they're single or or wherever it is in their life. And this is the picture that God has given in the context of this book that he loves them with this unfathomable love. That it is glorious and that it is good and that it is worthy of all things. But notice what happens in verse two. He begins to transition. He says this, beloved, we are God's children now. And what will be has not appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. This verse sort of illustrates an idea that over the decades, you're going to hear me talk a lot about this. And it's just simply the already and the not yet. It's one of my favorite things to talk about as far as paradigms in the Old and the New Testament because it it brings clarity to so many different things. And what this means that this verse is talking about is that we have been justified by Christ and that through Jesus, there have been certain things that have been fulfilled because of him. But yet, even though he has fulfilled those things perfectly, there are still some things that are going to happen that have not yet happened. There are still some things in my life, though I've been saved and redeemed by Christ, God is still working in me. And so the process that we walk through is that we're justified and declared righteous at salvation, but then we enter into a process of sanctification where we're made holy. And this is where we are right now if we're following Christ. And eventually we're going to be glorified. So it it moves in this direction. Justified, declared righteous by Christ because of him. We're sanctified by the Holy Spirit. He's working in us. He's changing us. He's moving us into the people that he wants us to be. And the moment we get glorified and perfect is the moment we have taken our last breath on this earth and we have entered into the presence of God. And what he's saying here is that we're in this process of being sanctified and made holy. But someday when we're glorified, we're going to behold and to see Jesus differently than we've seen him before. We're going to see him with eyes that are unblemished from sin. I think one of the best explanations of this text was found by Jonathan Edwards. And he said it like this in relationship to verse two. He says this, grace is glory begun and glory is grace completed. What an incredible way to talk about this verse. Grace is this idea of God's beginning my glorification. And when that's completed, that's when I I enter in and that's when I see glory. When he ends in verse three and he says this, this hope of transformation, he says, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. This idea of being pure, just very quickly, just, it just means free from contamination. And the idea here is that someday we're gonna look forward and we're longing for that day where he makes all the wrongs right. Eugene Peterson, in his uh, paraphrase of the message, he, he says it like this, and I think it's well said. He said, all of us who look forward to his coming, we stay ready with the glistening, love this, glistening purity of Jesus as our own model of our own life. And just as an aside, because I haven't been here long enough to say this, but the message is, it's a paraphrase. It's not a translation, but it's a good paraphrase. It's, it's good for devotions. And the way Peterson says things often are ways that we, we lack in our words, and he's a great wordsmith. But I love this phrase, glistening purity of Jesus' life as a model of our own. 
And so here's the big idea recaptured this morning for us. Our hope for the future enables you to pursue God's best in the present. So the idea is that we understand the implications of eternity and that that should have impact on us today. I know some of you guys who have been around a little bit longer, you're familiar with that that statement, don't be so heavenly minded, you're no what? Earthly good, you've heard that before? Don't be so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. There's a Greek word that I spent a lot of time um, parsing and wrestling with lexicons, and the Greek word in response to that is just baloney. <laughs> the sentiment is, don't be so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. That's, that's ridiculous. Because the idea in the text is that being heavenly minded makes you fit for earthly good. Like, this is the point. To live with eternity on our lips and before us in our presence That's how we're motivated to to call and to be the people that God wants us to be. To close this morning, I want to bring us back to verse 28. And I want us to, to sort of hone in when he makes this statement as we sort of circle back, when he appears that we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. The obvious person that shrinks in shame at his coming is the person who does not know Christ personally. Friend, if we, if we believe in the Bible, we believe Jesus is coming back someday. We believe the first time he came, he came to deal with sin. And the second time he comes back, he's gonna deal with, with suffering. He's gonna deal with disease. He's defeated those things, but they're still prevalent. We're still wrestling with those things. And so he was on a sin mission. And and most explicitly in verse 28, when he says those who will shrink back in shame are those that do not know Christ. Friend, it's our desire as a church that if you don't have a personal relationship with Christ, we want you to know him. And we want you to, to call upon his name and be saved. But if you know Christ this morning and you are the church that I'm speaking to, here's my challenge for you this morning. When you're here, our posture is to to love our city and, and, and to love the nations and to go into the nations. But we need sort of checkups every once in a while as a church to make sure that, that we're loving the church and, and loving the church the way the church is supposed to be loved and, and caring for it. So here's my challenge to my church family as your pastor. Do you exude a, a verbal confidence with people here? that you, you regularly like, let them know, hey, I'm really glad you came today. And I, and I want you to know that. It doesn't matter if you're introverted or extroverted. It doesn't matter. I'm a huge introvert. Did you know that? Have I told you all that before? I'm a huge introvert. People are terrifying to me at times. My wife's the extrovert of the family, but but I'm introverted, but you can be introverted and be highly relational. And that's the goal. But the confidence before the Christ is, is an outspokenness to articulate that back to him. When we first got to Avila, when we left Travis from student ministry and went to pastor, 
we'd have these guests and visitors that came. And um, I say this knowing some of them watch these sermons and they're, they're going to shake their head when they're watching this. We, um, I was told by some visitors that came in and said, man, we love your church. We love this, this, and this. But it's kind of hard to get to know people there. Like they're not, they're, some are friendly, but it's just hard. I don't, I don't feel known. And I said, man, I need you to come help me change that. So they come along and over the years, we, we became and we would regularly have visitors return to our church. And here's what they'd say. Like, I mean, we, we heard the word preach, great music, but y'all are the friendliest group of people we've ever met. Like, unreal. And it wasn't always, that wasn't always said about it. You know, how do you get there from here from there? And, and, and I tell them, and I'll tell you this, like, don't make the assumption that you're friendly just because you, you're generally friendly with the people that you know. Do you understand? Like Christian is, is friendly to me and I'm, I'm friendly to him. But just because I'm friendly to him or, or I know you doesn't mean that, I, that I've gone out of my way and I need to pursue and be intentional in, in that pursuit of things. Because here's the deal, the Lord's bringing people to this church. I'm seeing, I'm seeing some good things that are happening in the life of our church and our body. But if we're gonna to continue to grow and to reach people, our posture, even when we come in this room, has got to be one of service. And we're gonna get our 10,000 steps in before the preacher gets up to start preaching. Because we're walking, we're inviting, we're sharing, we're loving, we're being the hands and the feet that God has called us to be. And so church, my challenge to you is let's go get it. World will know us by how we love each other. Don't take your love for the saints for granted or assume that everybody knows. You gotta tell them. Who have you told today? Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you that when you appear, for those of us that know you, that we don't have to shrink back in shame, but we can have great confidence before you. We thank you, Lord. So help us, Lord, change church. Help us change as a body. Help us change individually. Lord, help me change as a pastor. Let it start with me. Father, we give you these next few moments in response. We pray that you're honored in all that we do and say. We love you. We pray in Christ's name. God's people said, amen. As we sing in response, we sing in response to the Lord. This altar is open for those of you who wish to pray. I, I think a, a great way to pray for our church is that we would be outward focused and that that's our pursuit. Who hadn't come yet? Who's here that I need to go get? And I think a great act of symbolism would just be coming down in this altar and just praying that prayer. If you, you wanna talk about salvation and giving your life to the Lord, I, I'll be down front. would love to visit with you about what it means to know him personally. If you just, you just got issues and just junk in your life, you're like, I just need prayer. We love to pray for you, nothing more than to pray for you. You're loved, you're cared for. Let us respond and worship in song now. Would you stand and respond as the Lord leads?